0: Good morning, I'm Beth and I'm going to read our sermon reading today, Isaiah 65, verse 17 through to chapter 66, verse 2. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word.
1: Thanks, Beth. Well, today we come to the end of our series in Isaiah. My goal is uh, to capture some of the journey, but also the good future that God has in store for those who love him. So if you've missed the whole series, then let me give you the short version. And it comes with one last big reveal. Although for us, as we live after Christ, it's perhaps a little more familiar. But let me pray. Uh, that God might help us hear the things we need to hear. Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that my words might honour you, that each of us will be impacted and changed by the things you want us to hear. Amen. We live in a culture that is very much about living in the moment. And I suppose that's one of the luxuries of living in a peaceful prosperous era or period of history and in a country uh, that is safe and secure we don't have to think too much about survival and so we can spend more time thinking about things like happiness and how I pursue happiness and life can look like just one big buffet of happiness, opportunity. There's all this goodness and so we want to see it and feel it and taste it and experience it. And we want it all and we want it now. You know, we don't just want, you know, to wait to see those good results. You know, we don't want to spend our time, you know, saving up for that, you know, new car or, you know, perhaps even the house. You know, we don't want to spend too much time getting to know someone in relationships. We're hoping we can just sort of flick right and find the perfect person or left. I'm not sure which direction you're supposed to flick, but you're supposed to flick somewhere uh, to find someone. Uh, but, yeah, we see all of these things and we want them. Yeah, we walk into the gym and we're sort of hoping on day one I'm going to walk in, you know, feeling you know, not quite you know, as fit as I could be. But I'm going to walk out in an hour's time And I'm just going to be like, you know, a chiseled example of of a human being. So we want all of these good things and we have lots of expectation, but life doesn't always live up to that expectation. And so we're conflicted. We love life. We see the potential for life. We've got all sorts of aspirations for life. And we cling on to this life as if there is no tomorrow but we are struggling to find the satisfaction that we so desperately desire. And even when we have moments of self-reflection, we're encouraged to perhaps look in and find self-fulfillment. Sometimes we're encouraged to look out and rediscover the value of family and community and charity. But very rarely are we encouraged to look up and to consider that perhaps there is more to life. Perhaps we fit into a bigger picture. And perhaps even the brokenness of our experience is pointing us to something better. And for those who like a little bit of music nostalgia, uh, the Eurogliders were onto something uh, when in 1984 they sung, Heaven must be there. Well, it's just got to be there. I've never, never seen Eden. I don't want to live in this place. And the brokenness of this place is one of the big themes of Isaiah, starting with their brokenness in terms of their relationship with God, but also how that then impacts everything else. So the beginning of Isaiah opened with these words, I reared children and bought them up, but they've rebelled against me. And that impacts, again, our relationship with God, but also our love for one another. We're a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. And that's how God sees Judah, his people. But that's also us, isn't it? That we still struggle with the realities of sin. And God disciplines Judah and the nations around them become the rod of God's judgment. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to relieve the suffering they're experience experiencing except for the one thing that they actually need to do. So they become more religious. Let's sacrifice more and give more and fast more. They set up idols uh, from the nations around them and they pray to their block of wood. Uh, The more pragmatic people take up uh, or take matters into their own hands and they form alliances. So first they form an alliance with the nation of Assyria Uh, And then the Assyrians turn on them and invade, so that didn't work so well. Uh, And then they look to the Egyptians. But the one thing they won't do is actually repent and turn back to God and behave in a way that aligns their life with who God has called them to be. And before we point too many fingers, perhaps we need to look at some of our own behaviours. You know, we come to church on Sunday, we're hoping that God will see that we are doing good things and he'll return the favour, that he'll give us a life of success and good health and happy family. But we don't always live out the way we live on Sunday uh, for the rest of the week. Or perhaps we hang a cross on the mirror in our car, and it's kind of like a lucky charm, and we're expecting that that's going to protect us from all the traffic hazards of Oak Flats roundabout. Or for the pragmatist, I do bag out that poor roundabout a lot, but it does deserve it. So, or perhaps the pragmatist, you know, where we put our trust in education and science and we're hoping that those things will make the world a better place. And the point isn't that, that education and science aren't good, but that we put our hope in those things as if they are the solution to everything. And at the heart of it, they don't deal with the problem of sin. And so we see the world and we see sin and we see even salvation through this lens of happiness and comfort. But that's only part of the story because God's bigger concern is for our sin and reconciling us to ourselves, to himself, and God dealing with the biggest threat to life, which is death. And so the book of Isaiah looks forward to the one who will bring genuine peace, but we also know that that peace will come at a terrible cost. So in the words of Isaiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And we know that those words will be fulfilled in Christ on the cross. So faith is being confident that he has secured our salvation and faith expresses itself in obedience. It's the conviction to say, this is where I will stand. This is the rock where I will stand, trusting in Christ as my saviour, and I will not be moved. And that means that right now we have peace with God. But life doesn't always feel that peaceful. And thankfully, God has big things to come. And I know we've taken a little while to get here, but this is where we get to really the heart of our passage for today. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. You know, Judah will go through periods of faithfulness and peace and prosperity. And God's presence will be represented again by the temple, but it's only ever a taste of things to come. Uh, For us, our experience is a little more up close and personal. So we experience God through the events of the cross and is now present in us through his spirit. He's the one who gives us the conviction and he's the one who gives us the will to stand on the good foundation that he's prepared for us. So our salvation and peace are real in the present, but they're not perfected. Uh, But a time is coming where God is going to bring all of the pieces together, when every part of his creation will be in perfect sync with its creator, and everything that exists will be united under his rule. So the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now I'm not quite sure why, um, and you might resonate with this, but I do feel far more comfortable talking about God and even talking about Jesus as the incarnate son of God than I am talking about Satan. Uh, or, for that matter, anything to do with powers of darkness or spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Uh, Perhaps, as I sort of reflect on it for myself, one feels more grounded in the events of history. You know, Jesus walked and talked, lived, died, rose again. Uh, The other feels a little less tangible uh, and therefore perhaps a little more superstitious. Uh, There's a quote uh, that I love uh, from a short story called The Generous Gambler, Uh, And it's about a conversation with the devil. And this is what the writer recalls in the devil's words. He says, he had been afraid relative as to his proper power once only. And that was on the day when he heard a preacher, more subtle than the rest of the human herd, cry in his pulpit. My dear brethren, do not ever forget when you hear the progress of the Enlightenment praised that the greatest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he does not exist. If it sounds familiar and you haven't heard of The Generous Gambler, you might have seen it in a movie called Usual Suspects. But the great declaration of the Enlightenment was God is dead and any notion of God or Satan should be properly confined to the art galleries of the world, something to be admired, a relic of a former age but certainly nothing to be believed. But when we look at the life of Jesus and what he experienced and when we hear what he says about Satan and when we read the whole picture of the Bible, we see that if we're going to believe in God, then we also must believe what he says about Satan and evil. Now, that doesn't mean we can blame Satan for our sin, which would be convenient, but he does certainly love to poke the bear. He loves to take our sinful nature and poke us and goad us and he loves to sow doubt you know that idea of did God really say but when Isaiah talks about a new heaven he's anticipating everything being renewed so not just in terms of him dealing with our sin but every part of God's created order so verse 20 never again will there be In it, an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And that language of life and rest and peace is picked up again in our passage from Revelation. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. But there is a wrinkle in that description as it talks about this new heavens and the new earth. And it's there at the beginning of verse twenty. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, or I'll put it on the screen. But the one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child, and the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. Now it's meant as good news. So it's a bit like the person saying to to the the other person who's afraid of flying, there is a one in a billion chance of the plane crashing. Uh, But for the person who's got the fear of flying, all they hear is, so what you're telling me is I'm going to crash and die. And you sort of go, now. that wasn't really the point of my my story. The point was that you should feel confident in flying, uh, not that it's dangerous. Uh, So he's saying this as something good. But even so, it does leave us questioning, what does he mean about this new heavens and new earth? And in particular, what does he mean about death? Where does death fit in God's plans for things? And I don't think there is an easy answer to how these words all fit together. It's a little bit like a piece in a a puzzle. If you've ever done a jigsaw puzzle, there's always that, that piece or a whole lot of them where you go, this just does not fit. And we start to conclude, actually, the problem isn't us. The problem's the puzzle. Surely the manufacturer's got this wrong, and, and I must have this right. And that's often at least my first assumption. Um, you Just don't leave me hanging here. Um, but, you know, we often think it must be wrong, I must be right. But, of course, the limitation is really us, that we, we, we're just not seeing the whole picture. And it's a little bit like that with a verse like this, that we don't see how it fits together, at least not neatly, But we can at least have some answers and we can at least see some of the direction. So let's unpack what we can see at least briefly. And the first is, well, for starters, the language of new heaven and new earth is picked up again in the New Testament. And it's always in the context of Jesus coming again. And it's always in the context of God's final reordering of creation. Uh, So whatever these words mean, he's not simply talking about a period of prosperity in Israel's history or something that will happen between when Christ came and when Christ will come again. Uh, Some writers uh, point to Revelation 20, which talks about this period of a thousand years of Christ reigning uh, before he finally comes again to judge the living and the dead. But even if that is a literal description, it is difficult to see how that fits neatly into new heavens and a new earth because the new heavens and a new earth are sort of placed after that event. What we do know, though, is that God does have plans to destroy death. So in the words of Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever. And we've seen that in a couple of the passages we've just read. So from 1 Corinthians 15, from Revelation Twenty-one. So we might not be clear about all of the meaning, but we can be clear about the point. Uh, God has good things planned for his people, and God has plans to put everything in its perfect place, and that includes putting sin in its place. And in the context of Isaiah's original audience, this plan is bigger than just national restoration. So jumping back into Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you'll build for me? Where will my resting place be? And the answer won't ultimately be a temple. It will be the new heavens and the new earth where God's dwelling place is now amongst his people. So this is awesome news. You know, imagine all of God's good creativity with none of the brokenness where our relationship with God is no longer limited by the separation of heaven and earth and where our relationships are no longer limited by our sin. Uh, That is what God is offering us. But it's an offer that must be accepted. And that means we've got a choice to make. And if we're going to make the right choice, it's going to take a willingness to humble ourselves before God And to recognise his rightful authority over us. These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and who tremble at my word. When we read God's word, it should bring us to a place of trembling as we come to terms with our sinfulness, but also God's judgment. God will hold us accountable for our rejection of him, but also our failure to to love others, our failure to uphold justice. And if the Old Testament teaches us anything, it teaches us the terrible reality of God's judgment. Uh, It's not just an inconvenient slap on the wrist. Uh, Let me read the closing words of this book of Isaiah. So these are the last words that God wants us to hear in this epic journey that we've been on. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. We would like things to finish on an affirming word, wouldn't we? Something positive and uplifting. But these are the last words that God chose to inspire through Isaiah. Uh, thankfully, they 're not the only word. You know, as we 've read the whole big picture, God is offering mercy to anyone who' will accept it, And much later on, we see how that offer fits with his justice, that He will allow his son to die in our place to pay the consequences of our sin. Uh, He is the one who's going to bring everything into its rightful place. So the writer to the Hebrews puts it all together very helpfully like this. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he'll appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. God has set things in motion, and there is an inevitable future outcome. And this passage wants us to look forward to that future with a sense of anticipation and confidence. But we live in an instant gratification culture, and so the idea of giving up anything in the present for something better in the future doesn't sit naturally. Uh, particularly if we're struggling to believe that this is actually true and good in the first place. And so the big message of Isaiah and the Bible is that God's way is better now and God has laid out everything we need in the events of history to recognise the future that he has planned for us. So if we doubt sin, then we just need to look around and if that doesn't work, just look in. If we doubt God's justice and judgment, then let's look at what happened to Judah. And if we doubt the future, then we look to Jesus and we see the events of the cross and most significantly we see the events of the resurrection and his promise to come again. And God in his mercy has a good future planned for those who love him. But if that doesn't excite us, then at very least we need to heed the warning that we will all stand before God sooner or later and we will all be accountable for our life choices. So let me pray. Dear Lord, as we've reflected on your word today, we hear good news but we also hear the challenge before us and the responsibility before us. But ultimately, Lord, help us to see your goodness and grace and mercy and the life that you offer through your son and the goodness in our life now, but also the goodness for our future. And so, Lord, we do thank you uh, that you are patient with us, that you love us and that you call us back to yourself. And I pray that each of us might recognize that and accept that for ourselves. Amen.